Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting its listeners. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber today at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Amy Cartwright, welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. How are you today? Doing very well. Thanks, Bill. Good, good. I'm glad to have you on today, Amy. The... uh and maybe just kind of some background for uh, for my listeners. Uh, you and I have uh, have been, I guess, internet friends, and I think uh, pretty good internet friends here for about the last uh, maybe year, maybe year and a half. And uh, I very much enjoy your perspective and views as a sister in the church and the experiences in which you've had. And so I've I've uh, invited you on today, and glad that you could you could be with us to have a discussion about uh, those experiences, the role of women in the church. And to to get your point of view on on some of the issues that are pertinent uh, in today's church, but I want to start off by giving you just a moment to share just a, a brief bio about yourself, so that my listeners can get a better feel for uh, for who you are. Sure, um, I have been a member of the church since well, I was born in the covenant and raised by pretty orthodox parents. Um, and my mom's a convert to the church, so it was very important to her that we learn about receiving our own testimony of the gospel. And I grew up very much wanting and feeling a, a big part of Mormonism. And it, it's still very much, obviously, a way that I identify myself. But, um, yeah, I feel like my entire life has been one of trying to understand God and trying to understand my role in this world, um, primarily as a Mormon, but also as a daughter of God and um, a woman in the church and things like that. And so the majority of my life was pretty normal. Um, as far as a Mormon girl goes, I went to BYU after a couple of years at a non, I went to a public university first for a couple of years and then decided to transfer to BYU and I got my undergraduate and then my master's in music performance with minors in theater critical studies which I think really opened up my my mind and my worldview um, especially my minor my my research was in female bodies on stage in opera and so obviously this kind of led me to a lot of feminist literature um, which was really eye-opening to me to see how to see how we had constructed gender and even how we talk about what a female body means throughout the history of western civilization it was mind-blowing to me um to realize that even how we talk about what women are as females, we're not talking about gender here, and I do see a difference between sex and gender, um, but that even how we construct female and male sexes is has changed throughout the history of our civilization. So that, of course, led me to start to have a few, to start to break down a few of my assumptions about women in the church. Um, 
mostly with things like I was taught that gender is eternal, and here I could say, well, it, I, I'm reading all these accounts of what gender was in 13th century and, um, and through the Enlightenment and how that changed. And so that caused, I don't want to say a crack, but it definitely caused me to push back a little bit on on how we talk about men and women and female, male, um, and the spectrum of gender. Um, growing up, I had a very, very black and white view of what it was to be a man versus what it was to be a woman, that these are women's jobs, these are men's jobs, these are, I mean, I was in school band and I played girl instruments, not boy instruments kind of thing. And so that it really broke that down for me. And I still am a very traditional female uh, woman. I stay at home with my children. Um, I enjoy lots of, quote, girly things. But I I have been able to realize that that's my personal, um, that's my personal way of existing in this world and how I put on female and woman. And I began to realize that that's not how everybody is. And so... That's what led me to Mormon feminism, um, just this idea and understanding that to be woman means many, many, many different things, and it doesn't necessarily mean that all women are nurturers or women uh, women want this or men want this, that there's a broad spectrum of who and what we are in this world, both as men and women and wherever people might identify along the gender spectrum. Excellent. So there's no cookie-cutter way that, that women or men need to to fill an exact role in a certain way. I like that. And I, I hope that we can get into talking about uh, some of your opinions and experiences uh, relating to uh, issues with uh, with sisters or women in the church, as well as maybe speaking briefly about the ordained women movement. Before we launch into a discussion about ordained women, I just want to make it clear to all of your listeners that I'm not a spokesperson for ordained women. Um, I come at this completely from my own experience as being a part of the the group ordained women, but definitely not somebody who speaks on behalf of ordained women. All right, so let's jump into this, Amy. I wanna I wanna talk about various uh, various issues that obviously are important to you and important to sisters in the church, at least at least a group of sisters in the church who who want to know what their divine potential is and and want to know what what God intends for them as their their roles both within the church and the world and within exaltation. And so the first thing I wanted to hit on was uh, was talking a little bit about maybe some of these these uh, these peripheral subjects and maybe just get a feel for some of them. So thinking maybe along doctrinal, uh, logistical, personal reasons for for desiring ordination and which is the ordained women's uh, as a group, that's that's their impetus, which is to essentially put it on the table and request that leaders of the church consider, talk about, and pray about whether sisters in the church could be ordained uh, to the priesthood. And so maybe if you just want to share with us for a little for a little bit some of your thoughts on what are some of the reasons that uh, that sisters in the church do desire uh, ordination to to the priesthood. I think that that will be really individual for each woman. My what led me to considering the possibility and then the desire for ordination um is multifaceted, but probably the first one that really really influenced me was understanding that how we discipline women in the church is 
I hope this doesn't upset your listeners, but I find it a bit reprehensible that a woman can be behind doors with four men alone, no other women um, who are a part of that council, um, if she has committed some sort of sin or has found herself in a position where she might be undergoing a disciplinary council. And so that was really concerning for me. And of course, there's people, people have brought up a woman can take um, a witness in with her. She can have another woman with her. But I, I think that there's something that we have learned here in, in the U.S. Um, with, with this understanding that we must be judged by a trial of our peers and that it wasn't fair and it wasn't right to put women on trial with the jury of men and of all men and the same thing that it wasn't fair to be trying uh, p- persons of color with no one of color on that jury. And I believe that it's because you bring different perspectives and understandings because of who we are in this world, that as a woman, I experience the world differently than a man. And so as I, I was really troubled by this. And even on a smaller scale, I had been in worthiness interviews, um, especially as a youth, where questions were asked of me that were really disconcerting. Um, I guess to launch into, this is something that I actually do talk about on my Ordained Women profile, um, that I was in, I had an experience where a bishop asked some questions about um, about masturbation, and I had never even I had never even thought of these sorts of things very much, and um, and so to be alone in a room with a man who was asking me these questions was really troubling for me as a young girl, especially as someone who very much valued privacy and chastity around my own sexuality. I um, was not very comfortable talking to anyone about it, let alone a middle-aged man alone in a room. And and that actually really hurt my testimony at the time because I walked away feeling so unclean about the experience that then I started to question, was there something that I had done that was wrong? What was the matter? Um, and I started to experience a lot of anxiety around my church attendance. And so that's something that has really stuck with me. And it's, it's taken me a long time to even realize that that, was, that that was what the issue was. I had been placing the blame on me for so many years about that experience. But to step back and realize that that was there would be no other time in my life that I would allow my, I have a daughter, that I would allow her behind a door with a middle-aged man talking about her sexuality. And then to have this happening in our church buildings became really disconcerting for me. And so that was probably the first experience that I had where I thought, you know, I don't, I think that it's proper that women are having these conversations on their own terms, and I believe that most women would rather have that conversation with another woman than with a man. And, of course, the issue, though, is that doctrinally, or policy, I guess that's something that needs to be teased out, that currently for worthiness interviews to occur, they must occur with someone who holds priesthood keys um, to be able to go through the repentance process if that's necessary. Um, 
which currently is only men, which therefore means that it doesn't matter if it's a young girl or a young boy or a grown woman or a grown man, that they are all behind a closed door with a bishop who currently is a man. And so that led me to start to question, is there a possibility of, of that changing? What would that look like for disciplinary councils? Would it be possible for women to sit on those, um, to sit in a disciplinary council, but currently, in the current structure of the church, it would require priesthood ordination for women to occupy those positions. And so, yeah, so that was what first led me to to question the ordination of women. And having having served as a bishop, uh, and maybe I should come from this from multiple angles, one is that I knew better. I understood that that was crossing the line of inappropriateness. So whether I had a young man or a young woman in my room uh, in the bishop's office with me and having an interview with them, I I never covered. I mean, I obviously was aware that we have youth who who you know are are having certain sexual behaviors, but I would never make it a point to be the first person to bring up any of those kinds of questions. I mean, obviously, I have to ask the question for the temple interview: Do you live the law of chastity? But that was the extent of any sexual questioning I would throw out there. But but as you're pointing out, not every bishop understands. The line of what is appropriate and inappropriate, number one. Number two, unfortunately, there are always going to be people out there who misuse any kind of authority that they have. And certainly, while it may be, may be uh, rare or at least less than, than somewhat to pose, there's certainly been sexual abuse in these kinds of issues, uh, these kinds of cases where leaders are alone uh, with youth of the church. And so I, I certainly understand, and maybe just to, to kind of reiterate what you're saying, to, to speak up uh, as one who served as bishop, to speak to all others who listen to this podcast and who serve in leadership positions, I would be very careful of of asking sexual questions beyond the question of, do you live a law of chastity? And, and as you pointed out too... Uh, Amy, having someone else in the room for those interviews, I would be as a bishop. I mean, I didn't, I didn't say this is what it has to be, but if any parent wanted to do that, I was happy to oblige that. Happy to have someone else in the room with their child. And there were cases where that happened, where the mother wanted to come in and sit for uh, a baptismal interview for their youth, or sit in on a youth interview. Um, and so I was okay with that, and I thought it was appropriate when the parent wanted to do that. And and I recognize right that. For those leaders who don't want to allow that, or for those parents who don't even consider the fact that abuse can could possibly happen, or at the very least that some leaders will ask inappropriate questions that will will in some ways uh, could be offensive, could be uh, traumatizing in some ways to to the youth or to kids or even adults, as you're pointing out your own experience. Is and I and I hear what you're saying that it has to be a matter of a a priesthood change. But do you see this issue maybe just being fixed simply by allowing uh, a parent to go into the room with their kid, or as you point out, maybe to allow the Relief Society president to attend a disciplinary council? And I agree, it would be a doctrinal change, but it could be a doctrinal change that doesn't require priesthood necessarily. You know. I have considered that, and it's something that, as a parent raising children in the church, that I have I have composed my own code of what is appropriate for my children, and one of them is that they will not be in a worthiness interview alone, um, wh- whether that is me or as they get older, if they would prefer it be a friend. I'm okay with that, but that I am pretty um, pretty adamant about the fact that those will not 
occur alone. I actually don't feel that that fixes the problem, though. Um, I feel like it's a Band-Aid, that it will help a bit, but the reality is that it's still, especially when it comes to disciplinary councils, it's still a jury of all men. And there is no other time in my life if I was going to court today, yeah, if I did something wrong and needed to go to court, there would be, if there was a jury, it would be, it would have women on it. Because as enlightened Westerners, we consider ourselves enlightened in some ways as far as our, our judicial system is concerned, we realize that that's really important. And I think that that's one of these things that actually, it's not that anybody's done anything wrong or has set this up maliciously. I just think that we haven't really thought about it very much, about the fact that, hey, it is kind of not it doesn't sit well that a woman might be in a room alone with four men who decide the future of her church involvement um and there have been some of the accounts i have read have just been heartbreaking of of women being caught in a situation where they i i read of one where it was this elderly woman who um, who had been assaulted, had been sexually assaulted years and years and years ago, um, and finally had the, finally felt to bring it forward to her priesthood leaders. And um, whether something was kind of lost in those interviews or what, I don't, I don't know how this happened. But um, the stake present told the bishop when they counseled together about it that she needed to be disfellowshipped. Um, and this is all coming through one of the counselors that sat in on that disciplinary council. But when he was sitting in on the formal disciplinary council with the four of, with the four men, that it became very clear to him, to him that she had been assaulted and should not be held accountable for it, let alone punished for it. And he brought that up to the bishop and said, look, like, this is wrong. She didn't do anything. She didn't do anything wrong. And the bishop said, well, this is what the stake president said. Do you support the leaders of the church? And if so, we need to, we need to do what the stake president has said. And and that's one of those situations where, again, it's all men who are a part of this. And we've read, we have story after story of women who were assaulted, who were told that they needed to go through the repentance process because they were a part of the experience and they had sinned, even if it wasn't their fault. And this is just one of those things where I think, I I think that it's difficult, not for all men, but I think that it's difficult when men occupy a place currently in the church where they do experience more power and authority than women do. And whether one believes that's God-ordained or not isn't really the question men do. And so when that occurs, I think it's difficult to see things from the point of the disadvantaged um, and the victim. And so, therefore, it just makes sense. Like, I don't even fault these probably very good men for making these decisions. It's just that that's the paradigm through which they see the world, that they experience power and authority, and it's difficult to see that that is not the experience of most women in this world. Most women are in a subservient position, almost uh, especially um, 
women of faith are usually in a subservient position. And so it's difficult to see that that might greatly impact the way that they experience the world and what happens to them and what they do. And so, well, I do think that bringing a Relief Society president in or bringing a parent in, at the end of the day, that doesn't change the the power structure of women at all. Um, it would still just be a woman in there but who has no voice um, or a parent in there, but they have no voice. Um, they can say things and bring up issues, but they are not at all a part of the final decision-making. Um, and so I think that I believe that that won't fix it. And I understand that. And I, and I, as you're speaking, we're talking about a Relief Society president being in the room, but not having priesthood or keys. And in some ways, I mean, yes, maybe that shields people from saying something really offensive. They'll think twice before saying something. But at the end of the day, it certainly doesn't put any more weight on how the decision is made or, or what, what eventually happens with, uh, with a council. If somebody has some kind of advice, like you pointed out in the experience where the stake president somehow, when it was all said and done, the message came across to disfellowship this sister. So Amy, let's, let's go from there to talking a little bit about what you see within church history that allows for for you and others to take the view that there is an opportunity there for some increased responsibility including possibly priesthood. Well, this has been this has been brought up a number of times, but the the early Relief Society, in in the notes that we have from Elias Arsenal from the Relief Society Minutes book, it's clear that Joseph intended some form of power and authority for the Relief Society. Um, and many may argue that that is currently still the case today. But he talks about turning over to the women. Um, he talks about Emma being ordained but needing to be set apart. And so we we see that we see both of those terms used. A lot of people will say that ordination meant that she was set apart, but we see him using both ordained and setting apart. Um, now, I want to be clear that I do not believe that the early Relief Society was set apart to the current offices of the priesthood. Um, I don't necessarily believe that. The, I think the historical record is interesting and can help us flesh out a bit more what what priesthood might be or what, what it could look like or how expansive it is. But I I will concede that the historical record does not say, look, women of the early Relief Society were ordained to the offices of the priesthood because it doesn't. Um, for some people, that means that the discussion closed. Um, I don't take that approach because. I don't think that we need to always look to history to what can be um, because the purpose of continuing revelation is to continue things forward, not to not to backpedal. Um, but I do think that within the early history of the Relief Society, we have an autonomous organization that exists alongside the offices of the priesthood and that um, last. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. So, so let me, let me interrupt you for just a second, Amy. I wanna, I wanna go back to something you said a couple minutes ago. You talked about there being a quote from the Prophet Joseph Smith when the Relief Society was organized that talked about, uh, in some sense, keys 
of the priesthood or keys in some manner, and really the only way we understand keys in the church is relating to the priesthood. Uh, do you have that quote handy, and would you mind sharing that with us? He said, I now turn the key to you in the name of God, and this, uh, this society shall rejoice, and knowledge and intelligence shall flow down from this time. This is the beginning of better days to the society. And some people will argue that... Um, that when Joseph says that he turns the key, that, that they'll work around this as being this idea that Joseph kind of like founded the Relief Society. But I think it's pretty clear when Joseph talks about keys, he means priesthood. Um, and and we see that throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's still how we talk about today as, as priesthood. Um, and so there are those who suggest that the Relief Society and the current offices of the priesthood are meant to to be paralleled to one another. Um, and and I think that that's a compelling argument and a compelling way to look at things. Um, where I see this breaks down a little bit is where this goes today, that once, once upon a time in the early church, the Relief Society was an autonomous organization, and today falls under the umbrella of the priesthood. I mean, in every ward, the bishop is the one who has the final say on Relief Society budgets, um, who oversees the Relief Society. Um, The First Presidency oversee the Relief Society today. And so, and that didn't always used to be the case, but it is the case today. So when it's talked about as parallel, that's something that that I believe is a good first step, that I think that the Relief Society should be an autonomous organ. Um, But my personal belief is that I find that to be really lovely for me because, again, I very much identify as a traditional woman um, who stays home with her children, who loves crafty things and things like that and so the Relief Society is a very good fit for me as a woman how it is currently set up but I recognize again that the experience of gender is along a very large um, is is along a spectrum and therefore I have a difficult time saying that because that works for me that this will work for all women that all women will fit nicely into this Relief Society and all men will fit nicely into these priesthood offices and so and people have asked me before how I feel about parallel priesthoods which is the Relief Society holds um, their kind of their own priesthood and the current male priesthood quorums hold a different priesthood and for me that works really well again but I recognize that that is not the case for for you know a good portion of our sisters and even brothers in the church that things don't work along these binary lines so well Right. I, I would love to be in Relief Society if only for the reason that the sisters prepare lessons days in advance and our priesthood teachers prepare the night before. So at the very least to be, to be edified, I would love to sit uh, in a Relief Society class and to, to listen to the lessons because I, I feel in some ways that, uh, as you're pointing out, these differences that we've created and I'm making obviously a joke and being being humorous, but these differences that we created uh, have an impact on all of us that belong to that group. And so, by me being a member of the priesthood, I'm I'm blessed in some ways with certain advantages that I have, and I'm limited by certain disadvantages. And there's no way for me to capture the blessings that the other group has. 
and, and obviously I'm using a, a, a off the cuff, I guess, a, a silly answer to kind of show that idea. But, but you talked about this, this concept that things were not always that way. Speaking about, uh, the Relief Society being under the direction of the priesthood, that it did stand alone on its own at one time. And, and I thought by, the quote you shared, the quote was beautiful. I now turn the key to you. I mean, it's not I turn the key on on behalf of you or I turn it for you, but I turn the key to you, in a sense, placing the key into the other organization. And, and what that quote specifically means, you know, who knows, but certainly the way in which you and I, as we read it and we say, hey, this is this is what it sounds like, makes it very interesting and intriguing. The other thing that caught my eye was the end of the, the quote, which is that uh, that knowledge and intelligence shall flow down from this time and it is the beginning of better days to the society which sounds like there's going to be this constant bestowal of knowledge and truth and an increase in in the ability that that organization has to do good and to have influence on others rather than being a stagnant organization and so we certainly see this opening for for changes talking about the relief society not always having been under the priesthood I, I remember reading something in early church history where sisters in the church gave blessings. And I wondered if you might, if you're more aware of that. I mean, I just, I just know from a surface understanding that it happened. Are you aware of maybe some of the details of what went on in early church history in regards to what role sisters took on in, in officiating in capacities that at least to our eyes today would appear to be similar to priesthood functions? Yes. The women of the early church, one of the, most beautiful um, accounts is of those, for me, is reading about these women who would anoint with oil their daughters, um, their sisters, in um, as they were in childbirth and labor. And they would anoint them with oil and they would bless them um, f- for that labor. And as a mother who has had children and been in labor. I, um, I remember when my husband was, just, uh, honey, I hope that you don't mind me sharing this. My, my husband and I had a doula and a female nurse. And I remember when my, my doula, who is also a good friend, when she would leave the room, that it was just, I was terrified and suddenly very scared that there was something about having women in the room. Whereas when my husband would go and, uh, you know, go take a little bit of a breather for a while. Um, it was, I was sad that he was gone, but I wasn't quite faced with that same anxiety as when my, when my sisters, when, when the other women would leave. And I was so touched reading these accounts of these women who would give these blessings and childbirth, um, that they recognized a, a power and authority that women have. And it's something that we still kind of talk about with women in the church, that we talk about how they have this great power in childbirth and in um, being mothers, but we don't actually give them any ecclesiastical power in that um in that experience, which makes me question, well, we can throw all the rhetoric that we want at women as, you know, holding this uh, ordinance. Um, I know that that's one thing that has been circulating is this idea of birth and um, and breastfeeding as ordinances. But 
and I, I think that's a, a nice idea, but I think that where it, there's absolutely no ecclesiastical authority in the church over those things means that it's divorced from our faith, that women throughout the world, and I mean species, uh, all mammals, give birth and lactate, and so um, if these are ordinances, there doesn't seem to be any faith, any Latter-day Saint faith component to them, and so therefore I'm skeptical of discussing them as ordinances or as um, women, quote-unquote, role in the church, because it's not actually a role in the church. It's a role in our biology and in our being and in just by virtue of being a woman, but has absolutely nothing to do with being a woman and of a follower of Christ and as a Mormon woman. There, there just isn't any difference. And so, um, and I know people will push back on that as far as like how we teach our children, things like that. And of course, but as far as those things themselves are are concerned, there's not. And that's where I feel like the blessings in childbirth kind of give a faith component to that that I would love to see restored again. Um, but we also, along with that, was this understanding that women could also prophesy and could receive revelation. Um, we have Eliza R. Snow being called a prophetess um, as the as the leader of the Relief Society. And and I think that that's really missing today in our church experience that women are seen as having power and authority when they speak the words of men, when they, um, when they align well with men's visions. I mean, even um, Sister Beck said this um, in the most recent New York Times article. There's a quote of her saying that um, – uh, of realizing the visions of men. And I think I find that that is that we are lacking a, a woman perspective and that we're lacking women's voices and understanding of our destiny when it all comes through men. And when it's because, again, there's that whole issue we talked about before of men experience the world differently than women do by virtue of the fact that men most of the time in faith communities, not even just our own, but in most faith communities, occupy a place of um, authority and privilege that women do not occupy. And so I find it difficult when when teachings about women or the visions of women are coming mostly through men and than through women who echo those things right. instead of being original about it. And, that's, and so that's something else I feel is really missing from our early days of the Relief Society is this understanding that women, um, our power and authority is within themselves um, for their own, own organization versus um, coming down through a male priesthood line. Right. So for those who need to hear a woman, you know, as a sister in the church, to hear a woman's voice in in wording things, in structuring an idea in a way that that the majority of sisters can can adapt to and work with and understand, we're we're in a community where most of the time, if not all, we're simply reiterating something that a male figure has stated, and there is no original thought 
that comes from from a sister in the sense of declaring some kind of divine truth or putting some kind of divine principle back into a way that the sisters can can relate to if that maybe makes sense and i'm not and i get that that's an overstretch right that that no matter who's speaking male or female that each of us have an opportunity to be inspired and and to be encouraged to to reach out towards the savior but that in some ways certainly if a group of men got together there's a reason why most women aren't interested in those conversations and there's a reason why when women get together that maybe most men you know just as a leisure you know having a just a an off the cuff friendly conversation that that they're be men who aren't interested. And I know I'm sounding like probably like a real male chauvinist as I say that, but I think it, my point is, is that women speak a, a language common, right? There's this whole men are from Mars and women from Venus that we don't understand each other. And yet we fully expect in the church that women will fully understand men as they deliver all the counsel from the top down. Well, exactly. And that's something that uh, I find that we're caught in a bind when we talk about women in the church for on the one hand, we say that men and women are very different, and therefore they have these different roles. Um, therefore, they occupy these different positions. Therefore, men hold priesthood, women are mothers. Um, but on the other hand, we say that it doesn't matter who the messenger is. The message is all the same. And I find those two thoughts to be irreconcilable, that if women and men are so different, then women's destruction needs to come through through uniquely women's perspectives. And But on the other hand, if it doesn't matter if that message is coming from a man or a woman, then that actually opens up, to me, that opens up the door to women's ordination because, well, then why wouldn't women be ordained? Um, and so on either end of that spectrum, I think that we have we have to grapple with this. I don't think that we can create a lot of... A lot of folk doctrine around why this is. I think we actually have to grapple the issue itself. And as I've, as I've conversed with people both online and in person about ordained women, one thing that has been clear to me is that one of the reasons that it's gotten a lot of pushback is the, is how it has come forth that people will say, well, we follow the prophet first. Um, and that this didn't come from the prophet, therefore it cannot be. And and that's actually what I find really frustrating is that that not that I don't believe it's important to follow prophets because I do, but because it's coming from a uniquely woman's perspective and uniquely women um, thought and experience that I actually believe that's one of the main reasons that it's getting a lot of pushback is that if if one of the members of the Quorum of the Twelfth had said these things first, then we wouldn't have as big of an issue with it. But if, say, Sister Beck came out and said it first, we would be pushing back on that because we're like, well, wait, that didn't come down through one of the the male leaders of the church first. They hold the priesthood. And so um, in watching how this is all kind of gone down with ordained women, in a lot of ways, uh, not down with ordained women, but as I've watched the the arm arguments sue, I have realized that that's one of the major, it's indicative of the problem that when women bring forth these theological ideas that we push back on them because we don't see women as spiritual authority. Um, and even if 
the current organizational leader of the women's organization were to say these things, I don't think that the response would be any different, um, that people would push back on that as well. Um, and that's something I've heard people talk about the fact that the female leaders aren't, you know, aren't coming forth with original ideas and um, that they, uh, the accusation has been leveled that sometimes the talks are not doctrinally engaging or interesting. And I think that that's because they're not supposed to be. Women are not supposed to occupy a place of spiritual authority in our minds, whereas men do. Um, so when women do that, it's very, very um, it, it's very disconcerting to us as Latter-day Saints when women assume that position. And I personally don't believe that that should be the case, but that is how it currently is. And I, and I appreciate that. I, I, I'm sitting here thinking about this. And first off, you worded that so much better than me. I come off obviously as ignorant and offensive as I'm trying to, to walk the line on this issue and to discuss it. But you're right. I mean, we talk about uh, not being able to take any kind of outsider's point of view and to think and ponder over it because it's not coming from the prophet. But in reality, lots of things in the church happen from a a bottom-up rather than a top-down. So there's certainly members of wards and stakes, people outside the church who are asking questions and having concerns. And because people are posing these issues and concerns and thoughts and sharing them, all of a sudden, this prompts those higher up to then say, hey, here's an idea. Let's run with this or let's pray about this or let's discuss this. And to take the viewpoint that every divine idea has to first be placed in the prophet's mind and come out of his mouth before anybody else can say that that was a divine idea or to say, hey, I've got a question about something. But until the prophet already answers the question, I'm not allowed to even ask it. I just don't think that follows very well with the way the church has run and I don't think it follows very well the the way in which changes have happened. I completely agree. And I um, one thing that I have found really frustrating in this conversation is that um, ordained women has requested audience with a member of the Quorum of the Twelve for the First Presidency to to discuss these things. Because as much as an online an online presence can get conversation going, I believe that it's face to face or podcast to podcast, whatever, that it's hearing people talk about these issues and coming to understand where they're coming from, where ideas can be bounced back and forth, is really where true dialogue occurs and where understanding takes place. And so that's been frustrating to me to see that not happen, to see the, to see the leaders of ordained women not being currently having their requests for audience denied, not denied, even just ignored, um, because I think that this is an issue that's not going to go away um, and that it will continue. It's going, I believe this will be the issue that defines this, the 21st century for Mormon, that where do women, what role are women going to occupy in the church, and that that's going to be something that's a major point of conversation and energy for right. for the church. And so a part of me gets really frustrated, and I'm like, can we just open, can we just open up the dialogue instead of... Um, instead of ignoring it, because I don't think that we can ignore it. It's a, it's a rock in our shoe right now, and I don't think we can really ignore it very much longer. I think we have to do something about the conversation. And I've mentioned to people before that I'm not above believing that I'm wrong. Um, I could be. Um, 
and I will assume that place of humility in this conversation that I fully understand that I might not be catching the full vision, but I have felt very much in my life that this is a conversation that I have been personally called to be a part of um, and to work forward. And so, and so that's why I'm personally involved. But, but yeah, I think that the most important thing is this conversations are to place in an environment where we consider all thoughts and opinions, regardless of where they come from. I was looking over the story of Deborah in the Old Testament the other day. And as Deborah is a complicated one for us in the church because she's a woman who prophesies, who leads, who is a judge in Israel, who, and that's language that we use in the church as for... Uh Uh-oh, she doesn't fit the mold. She doesn't fit the mold very well. And so this last March, the Enzyme came out with um, a segment on women in the scriptures, and they talked about Deborah, and they talked about her as, in quote, enjoying the gift of prophecy generally, but not holding the priesthood. And... Um, that's fine if that's how the church wish, wishes to, I shouldn't say the church, if the Enzyme writer who wrote that article wishes to see that. Um, but I think that that actually complicates the narrative of more than it helps it, because if Deborah can receive revelation for a nation and can lead armies and can be a judge in Israel as a woman who doesn't hold priesthood, then what does that say for for women today and therefore why would there be any pushback on women having an idea or feeling moved upon or having personal revelation and sharing that if this is the scriptural precedence before us so again on the one hand we have she didn't hold the priesthood but then it makes you question because she was a woman but then it makes you question well if she didn't hold the priesthood fine but the, that means, therefore, that it's not necessary to hold the priesthood to have power and authority in your faith community and to be somebody that people come to to counsel with and to receive revelation for for Israel. Um, so I think that that's really important as we move forward and, and as anybody moves forward in a conversation about ordained women, that setting up that dichotomy of, well, they are not the prophet, they are not the uh, ones who hold priesthood, they are not the ones who can receive this revelation um, because they don't have this calling or this um, they don't hold this office that it's important to realize that there's scriptural precedence for women having revelation and prophesying and leading without being in a systematized um, position to do so. Um, and that's something that's really difficult for us as Latter-day Saints to grapple with and to and to work with um, because it doesn't fit how we usually think about how revelation comes about. Right. I think we often we often work with this surface understanding, and when exceptions to the rules present themselves, we sometimes just brush those off to the side and and don't really want to deal with the repercussions that come from having that exception. And and. You know, so the one example that I would share just briefly would be the, the race issue. And so you had, you had things being taught in the 1940s as being a doctrine and it being widely accepted among the leaders of the church as doctrine. And then now in the present day, we've disavowed those theories as racism. And in applying that maybe to this situation, we look at 
where we're at perhaps on this issue and realize that just because we say something is doctrine today, or maybe we said it 50 years ago, that doesn't mean that God isn't going to reveal something new or to make some kind of change going forward. We were talking about... Uh, about healings and blessings taking place in, in early church history. And obviously today we still have some facet of women, of women officiating within the priesthood. Now it occurs only in the temples today. And Elder Oaks talked about this at length in his conference talk, which, which I want to ask you about as we get kind of to the end of this, but, but at least to mention that Elder Oaks agrees that, that for sisters in the church who are called on missions and are given power and authority, he says, what other power and authority could it be other than the priesthood? And when he talks about what happens in the temples, yes, sisters officiate in a priesthood capacity there. And so there certainly is room within Mormon theology to already acknowledge that on some level women are already officiating in the priesthood. So to have a discussion about other opportunities to do so certainly seems like a fair question. And, and to talk about how, uh, how these sisters uh, perform blessings early on, it was something that was done. So again, I think it raises the opportunity to ask the question on whether it can still be done today. And if not, is there some revelation that put an end to that? And if there isn't, what's our reasoning for, for ending that practice? And so it becomes, I think, pretty clear that there's a lot of ideas on the table that still need some discussion and that it's not just a closed case, sorry, leave us alone, let it go. There's no more discussion on this topic because we already have precedent for those things. And again, we as Mormons may not want to deal with the exceptions to the rule, but they're there and they're staring us in the face from our history. Yes, I completely agree. And I I feel like overall one thing that this is requiring us to do as a people is to flesh out what priesthood is. And I would argue that from what I understand of the historical record, that it in the beginning of the church, priesthood was understood more expansively than it is today. Um, that that priesthood, I don't quite know how to say this any nicer, but I feel like today we've we've reduced priesthood to a set of tasks to do, and that there's a part of what the priesthood is that has been missing in our discourse about it. That we talk about the priesthood being. Um, deacons who pass sacrament, or about it being um, priests who bless it, or about it being elders who preach the gospel, and bishops who oversee wards and things like that. It's become very checklisty, um, and part of that makes sense to me as the church has grown so large that there's there's a need for order in the house of God, but on the other hand, I feel that we've lost a big portion of what of what priesthood can be and is. And I feel that today we are, the Elder Oaks' talk shows that we are moving towards trying to understand priesthood in a more expansive way. As far as his conference talk is concerned, I know that a lot of people have seen that talk as the answer to ordain women. Um, this is what it is. Let's close it down. And I feel that what's missed is this understanding that that the Elder Oaks' talk was actually far more expansive on the role of women in the priesthood than we've seen in a long time. And so I see that as as a place where the conversation is beginning again. Um, uh, I know that for those of your listeners who are familiar with Maxine Hanks, one of the things that she talked about um, 
for she's been ta- talked about quite a while ago was that as a missionary she felt that she had received the authority of the priesthood and that was something that at the time was really pushed back against and no you are a woman so you could not receive the authority of the priesthood you might experience the power of it on your mission but you don't hold the authority and so for elder oaks to 20 years later come out and say sister missionaries when they are on mission of course they are experiencing the power and the authority of the priesthood to me means that our conversation is starting to open up again and so um, I did see Elder Oaks's talk somewhat as an answer, but even more than that, I saw it as one point on the line of a continuing conversation that um, that things are changing and that our understanding of priesthood is is opening and becoming far more expansive than um, than it has been for the past hundred years. And so I find it actually really heartening and. Um, and really inspiring that things are opening up and changing. And that I believe that it is the first of a multitude of talks that will probably come forth about this issue, I hope, um, and that if they keep going in the trajectory that Elder Oaks' talk has set them on, that they will become more expansive um, for women in the church. Yeah, in some ways he, he made the questions valid, right? I mean, to, to take the stance that we took 20 years ago and say, no, you can experience the blessings of the priesthood, or you might even be impacted by priesthood holders to feel the power of the priesthood in a blessing or in, uh, in being set apart that you in essence don't yourself have the authority. And by him doing that, he's made the question valid. It's now, it's now appropriate for us to ask about what, what this authority is. What's the limits? What's the, what's the expansiveness of it? What, and again, can we return back to some of the things that we've done in the past? And I, and I want to hit on, you talked a little bit about, about Deborah. Uh, as a prophetess, and I just wonder if maybe you could quickly list for us uh, some other sisters in church history, in the gospel, in uh, in the old world, uh, who have on some level things have been said about them or things that they've done or said that seem to indicate that there may have uh, a possible interpretation is that there may have been some level of priesthood being uh, active there. So along with Deborah, she is just one of a number of prophetesses in in the scriptures that we have we also um we have Hulda and anna the prophetess who proclaims christ's divinity um we also have the the one who is very much under speculation is junia in the scriptures and in the King James Version, it talks about her being of note among the apostles. Depending upon which translation one reads, she either was an apostle or um, or was very prominent to the apostles. Um, my personal reading of that is that she was considered an apostle because not because of what we can read in the text, but because of what we have seen has happened to the text, that um, the early compilers of the of the New Testament record changed the name Junia to Junius because it, in a lot of ways it's, it was difficult for them to, I believe, I mean, I'm reading on this what is likely, that it's likely that they saw that it was difficult to believe a woman could be an apostle, and so the name was changed to Junius. Um, but current scholarship suggests it indeed was a Junia, and Junia is a female name. Um, and so 
of course, the question still is, was she of note to the apostles or was she an apostle herself? Um, but I, again, I think that looking at the history of how that was changed to Junius tells us a lot that we that they had a hard time accepting her as an authority figure and therefore she probably was an authority figure. Um, so we have Junia in the New Testament, and we have Phoebe. And I believe that the most, from the biblical record, the the one who should give us the most pause is Mary Magdalene, because we know that the definition of an apostle is one who testifies of the risen Lord. And Mary Magdalene is the person who testifies of the risen Lord um, to the other apostles. So in a sense, she's an apostle to the apostles. Um, there are those who suggest through readings of the gospel of Mary that that Jesus meant to leave the church in her hand and that there was some pushback to that. And I know among Latter-day Saints that um, the that the Gospel of Mary and other Gnostic Gospels are not, they're not canonical Gospels, um, but I think that they're still worthy of us looking at as historical records and what they can tell us about the life of Jesus. Um, so that's been our biblical record. And then if you come just into our into our own history, um, again, we have Eliza R. Snow and Emmeline B. Wells and many other women who who acted as healers. And there's this quote by um, President or by Joseph Smith that Eliza recorded where he said, respecting females administering for the healing of the sick, there could be no evil in it. If God gave his sanction by healing, there could be no more sin in any female laying hands on and praying for the sick than in wetting the face with water. It is no sin for anybody to administer that has faith, or if the sick have faith to be healed by their administration. And this is something that I've received pushback on when I've suggested um to people that I believe that as a woman, currently I do not hold, um, currently in our rhetoric, I cannot lay my hands upon somebody's head and pronounce them, um, and pronounce them to be healed. Um, that's not something that would be acceptable in our faith community, but we know that this happened in the early days of the church and we know that Joseph has approved of it. And so I think that that opens up a conversation about it. But, Bill, I'll be honest, in a lot of ways, I, I think that it's really interesting to talk about why women could be ordained, but I think what's most pressing is maybe why they should be. Um, like, what, why women need to be ordained today, and I believe that there, that there are a few reasons. That one of them is that we live in, uh, as those of us who live in Western society where there are many men who are priesthood holders, I think it's difficult for us to remember that that's not the case throughout the entire world, that there are many congregations that are struggling because they do not have enough priesthood holding males to fulfill assignments um, and that these that these sisters are are at a lack because there aren't enough men um, and that even has an impact on who is who's given time for 
um, teaching the gospel. Hopefully, now that there are enough missionaries, that we have this overabundance of missionaries, maybe that's not the case anymore. But I know I've heard of so many people who were told on their missions to focus on baptizing men and baptizing um, families where the husband will also get baptized. And that just doesn't sit right in my soul that if we believe that so many blessings come through the gospel, that we would be not allowing anyone who wanted to come in, regardless of being male or female, um, that that there would be anything in the way of that happening simply because they aren't the right sex to hold the priesthood. Um, and we know that there are women who serve tours with the military who go a year or more sometimes without being able to take the sacrament because they don't hold the priesthood. Whereas whereas men who are in the same position could prepare the sacrament for themselves. Um, and then, of course, we have the issue of church discipline, which is, to me is one of the major things that we need to tackle, and the church has had to handle that. Um, and and also just this issue of part, part member families or part active families. Um, I know for me personally, this was something that was really important. My husband had taken... Um, kind of a break from church about the time that our our baby our um, most recent baby was born and so he was not able to bless her and it was really frustrating to me knowing the history of women pronouncing blessings in the church to know that I couldn't be the one who was a part of that experience even though my husband also couldn't do it um so so there's there's that issue and then of course there's just i believe that the priesthood is a sustaining power um as women talk about how busy they are and they don't want more they don't want more responsibility i think that it's forgotten that the priesthood is a sustaining power and what woman who does have so many things to do both in the church and at home wouldn't be blessed by that sustaining power. Um, so, so yeah. So I think that there is lots of reasons as to why women could be ordained, but just as important, if not more important, I believe, is to talk about the reason why women should be ordained. Right, and th- and those are excellent, and and they speak to a need in situations to to certainly have the ability, and especially when I think of the sacrament and the importance that it has. I, I want to kind of wrap up, and I want to just maybe share just a couple thoughts. I know in preparing for this interview, we had talked a little bit about um, common arguments against women's ordination, and we talked about this earlier, so maybe if I can just kind of hit on a couple of these. Motherhood versus priesthood, as you pointed out, that's really not fair, because motherhood and fatherhood are, are fair uh, comparisons, because the whole world... Uh, can take part in one of those two. But in reality, only members of the church and men at that can participate in priesthood. It's just not a fair comparison. You uh, you also had mentioned uh, that one of the obstacles that people bring up is that there's this argument that there's no precedence for female ordination. But obviously, as we've already talked about, one, we're a church based on revelation, that uh, Article of Faith number 9 says many great and wonderful things are yet to be revealed in the kingdom of God, and that if we say, well, there's no precedent, well, I don't know. You I mean there was there is there a precedent for, you know, lots of different things in the church that we at some point in time we said okay, this is the way it's going to be. And uh, and you also talked um about different environments where males are kind of on their own or females are kind of on their own and in and, and there's kind of this lack of of space 
for like in an interview with a bishop and in counselors or a disciplinary council to have someone of that same gender there who can who can at least be part of those uh, those experiences so that things are on the up and up and that people think twice about saying things so that things aren't offensive or or said in a way that could hurt somebody and cause harm to others but i want to wrap up you know hopefully as people listen to this there's going to be a large segment who are going to say ah you know i don't have a horse in this race and this really doesn't concern me but i want to end maybe with you just sharing maybe a moment or two of your thoughts on uh, on why this issue is important to you personally and uh, we'll kind of end on that note yeah i you know i i there are a few reasons why this issue is so important to me the first is that i i do believe that there is more potential for harm in a structure where men and women are put on different authoritative fields. Um, I just think that there's too many opportunities for abuse and that they increase when things are divided along those lines. And we can see that throughout the world that, um, that in the, the more patriarchal a society, the more, um, the more opportunities for abuse and, um, and pain there are. Um, so one of them is just a philosophical issue that I believe that as long as women and men are put on different authority planes, um, and, and I will suggest unequal authority planes in the church, that so long as that occurs, there's just too much opportunity for abuse. Um, and I want to, I actually want to amend that by saying I have, for the most part, had really fantastic relationships with most men in the church. I believe, I believe that men in the church are very good men. Um, but I do think that it's not the men who are, who are bad. It's, it's the inequality that needs to be, that needs to be changed. Um, so yeah, so that's my philosophical reasoning. I also think that there's a very pragmatic reason for this. There are studies that show that when women have an equal voice at the table in, um, in communities and in governments and, um, even in business organizations, that, that things thrive quite well quite well first of all so it's not the downfall i know a number of people who believe that if women were ordained that it would be the downfall of the church um but that's not the case at all that actually these these communities thrive but also that a lot of the the needs of the community are met in a new way um and in ways that are effective i think about um as women have been brought to the table in in the Western world that we have very much worked on, and it's still a work in progress, but um, hunger in our in North America is so much less than it is other places in the world. And the United States has not always been um, a society where that has developed well. And of course, there are lots of other there are lots of other things that go along with that, um, with economic structures and things like that. But also in third world nations, when when women have been given equal voice and equal opportunities, their nations thrive. They have ways to feed each other. Um, they come. Women are the ones who, as the disadvantaged by power and authority, when granted authority, 
I believe, and sociologists would agree, most of them, that when you give women this power and authority, it elevates the entire community, um, and it solves problems that wouldn't be solved before, largely because you are eradicating a structure, a power structure that causes the harm that that is brought about through starvation and, and things like that. Um, in the church itself, I believe that one of the things that we're really missing is is an as a focus on issues that are quite deep, um, environmental issues, um, issues of hunger throughout the world, and and again, I want to be really clear that I don't fault. And I have great, great, great respect for the leaders of our church, but I believe that by not having women in on most of their um, councils and their meetings, that there's a lot that's missed. Um, my personal belief is that um, putting a lot of time and energy into defining um, a definition, sorry, in defining relationships it may be well and noble and good, but that we've missed an opportunity to put that much time and energy into um, feeding the poor throughout the world, um, ending dehydration, um, education for for boys and for girls, and and things like that. And so I I don't think that they've done anything wrong, but I do think that they have missed opportunities for for more perspective because just simply by the fact that there are so few women in comparison to men um, who make decisions in our church. Even down to the ward level, I, there are many women who sit in on on ward councils, but the reality is, is that not a single one of those women can make a final decision. Um, that everything must go through a male first, and that again, if we truly believe that men and women are different, um, and I do believe that men and women experience this world differently because of the structure of our society, um, not necessarily because of who they are, but because of how our society has structured the experience of men and women, um, that when everything comes down to a man as having the final say um, and men controlling all of the budgets, women have no um, financial responsibility in the church at all, I think that that's a structure that needs to be greatly reexamined. Um, and so that's what I, I see a vision for a church that where these things enter the table again. We look at the early Relief Society, and I, I mean, I'll be honest, I really envy it. I love the Relief Society today. I think it's a great organization. But I do feel that we are missing a good portion as to what the early Relief Society was, which was administering relief. It's great to bring casseroles to moms who have had new babies and to people who have lost a loved one. Um, but these women were were running hospitals and um, providing education and um, and doing a great humanitarian work. And I we don't see that as much in the Relief Society today, and I believe it's largely because women aren't the ones in charge anymore, um, which to me just exemplifies what could happen if women were an equal voice at the table throughout all levels of the church, all the way up to the top. Um, and I foresee, so I just foresee a better world um, and one that will be brought about because women are, are brought to that table. 
Um, and currently in our structure, that would require priesthood ordination. Perfect. And, and I appreciate that. And I hope that everybody listening today, that at the very least that you consider, consider the issue to think about it, to, to run through your mind some of the things that we've talked about, the quote from Joseph in regards to keys, thinking about the fact that women do officiate in a priesthood capacity in the temple, that they perform blessings early on, that there are situations in our world today where, where having priesthood would benefit uh, the sisters of the church and, and allow each of us to have more opportunities and more blessings. Uh, Amy, I'm so grateful that you came on today. And, I'm, and again, I, I think this is an important issue. And I hope that everybody who listens at least understands that it's up for, up for discussion and that it's okay for us to ask questions and for us to think about the, this using, uh, using our minds, using information, understanding this quest to, to grab at this issue and to make sense of it and to see where we can go from here. And I'm grateful to the church for the changes that have been made uh, with prayers and conference, with allowing sister missionaries to have a greater role in leadership on their missions, to to allow the sisters in the church who lead in various capacities to have more of a visible presence. And, and so, again, I see those changes happening. And, and, again, Amy, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me on, Bill. It's been a pleasure. They say what they 